of course, the first female president, should she win in November, of course she has to kind of get there by slaying this seven-headed dragon of, you know, rape culture and horrible misogyny and racism and uh, Islamophobia. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in New York today, and we're joined from Washington by FP columnist Julia Yaffe. Julia is also a contributing writer for Politico magazine and Highline. Also joining from Washington is another one of our FP columnists, Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And... Ed Luce, the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist. Thank you again to our dedicated ER nerds for continuing to submit ideas. We appreciate your enthusiasm and hope you'll keep them coming. Send your best ideas and you may get a mug. We're at ERpodcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from not one but two tiny podcast studios, one high above Washington's DuPont Circle and the other here in cool Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. One of the things that I get the most comments from uh, folks regarding this podcast is that we talk about Donald Trump too much. And although I have the utmost respect for our listeners, we're going to keep doing that. Uh, and the, and the reason, the re, it's not Donald Trump I really want to talk about. What I really want to talk about is what this election tells us about the direction of the richest, most powerful country in the world uh, and what it tells us about where we may be after the election. Because there are a couple of subtexts to this election that are really, really unusual, I think, um, in American politics and have global implications. One is the nature of Trump's support, who they are, what their views are, and what that may mean for the future of politics. By that, I, I particularly mean the nationalist impulse, the white supremacist subset, the anti-Semitic, anti-immigration subset. And then, of course, there is this other component, uh, and that is that this election seems to be being contested not just by political candidates in the United States, but by foreign actors, notably the Russian government, that seems actively involved in trying to influence the outcome. Um, I want to take these in two different pieces and try to keep our answers with an eye towards the future. Julia, you've been writing uh, very powerfully and tweeting very powerfully, if one can powerfully tweet, about the some of the sort of darker subtexts of Trump's support, notably um, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, but also uh, racism, misogyny, nationalism. Is something really different going on here, or is this a continuum of past elections? I think it's both. To be honest, I think uh, in some ways, you know, we're witnessing a very classic moment of reaction, of revenge. So in some ways, this is a continuation of 2008 in which the country, uh, the election of 2008 in which the country elected its first black president, which far from ending racism, 
in this country and tying this ugly part of our country's history in a nice, neat bow of um, kumbaya and uh, friendship of the peoples, um, in fact, lanced a boil that I think many people were trying to ignore or were hoping would go away on its own. And I think we're seeing a lot of those uh, issues coming out now with a renewed vigor, renewed force. I think as the country is, you know, one of the people that is most likely to be president in January is a woman, which would be a first for the U.S. And if it makes to me, perfect sense that she would be running against the most misogynistic, like cartoonishly misogynistic male candidate, that she's not running against a subtly uh, misogynistic Republican who's very genteel and, you know, his misogyny, if he has some, is very veiled and polite and um, covered up by issues. This is just overt. You know, it's, of course, the first female president, should she win in November, of course, she has to kind of get there by slaying this seven-headed dragon of, you know, rape culture and horrible misogyny and racism and uh, Islamophobia. Like, to, to me, it kind of makes sense both as something new and as an outgrowth, a reaction to 2008 and 2012, in which we elected and then reelected the country's first black president. So you would are you saying that this is sort of a backlash by a minority of Americans against a broader uh, and more pervasive progressive impulse in America and a and demographic change, in which case, if you're looking forward, that might continue and this backlash, while it may rumble for a while, will be overwhelmed by it? Or is it something that has a chance of, of reasserting itself? I don't know that it's a minority just yet. I think we're kind of at a tipping point. This is a historical demographic group that has been the majority for the uh, majority of the history of the U.S. They have wielded the most power. And, you know, if you look at demographic data where uh, American children under five, white children under five are a minority, you know, it's a kind of hard... People are looking down the pike and seeing a country that looks totally different from the one a, they grew up in, and B, controlled most of the resources and power. And so this is, in some ways, a reaction to a redistribution of resources and and power. And I think it's going to continue as as the demographic as the demographics keep shifting. I think that you bring up a very important point in terms of the longer term issue. The demographic shift that's taking place in the United States is unprecedented in its history. As you point out, 2013 for the first time, those that we had once thought of as minorities, which is to say African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians, actually comprised the majority in one cadre, which is the under fives. By 2020, that'll be true in another cadre, essentially under 18s. Every young person in America by the next election will be living with that reality. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, by 2043, uh, that'll be true for the entire country. So by 2043, the traditional white majority will actually be in minority relative to, to these minority groups. Uh, Ed, you've been thinking a lot about this change. Do you think there's something here in this election that is abnormal because Donald Trump is abnormal? Or do you see it as a continuation and, and that there are underlying trends that we need to keep an eye on? 
Well, I agree with everything Julia said. I, I mean, if you look at whether the Republican Party will heed the demographic signals from the likely defeat of Trump, what would give me pause is to look at how the Republican Party in California has behaved over the last 25 years, um, which is to double down, to retreat to the lager, as it were, um, uh, to circle the wagons, um, rather than reach out to um, to the new demographics in California, to the Hispanics and, and, other, and Asian Americans. It's become more and more of a, a rejectionist party and a white party. And I think that's partly to do with gerrymandering. It's to do with the fact that, you know, their their interests lie in staving off primary challenges. And so if you were to look at whether um, the districts at a federal level across across all 50 states, you know, are going to incentivize the National Republican Party to behave differently to the Californian. I have to say I'd be a little bit skeptical of that. Um, and I think if, as is probable, Paul Ryan has a, a much reduced, a significantly reduced majority in the House uh, on November the 9th, that the Freedom Caucus will take up a larger share of his party than before, just by virtue of the fact that the, the swing districts are where you find the more, if the term applies, moderate Republicans. So I'm a little bit sceptical that, um, that we're going to see a change uh, in behaviour from the Republican Party. And I think, as Julia says, we have the sort of perfect storm here of racial fear, ethnic fear about um, whites becoming a minority and latent misogyny in in the form of you know the the likely first female president of america and it's it's um if these are real causes if these are real parts of what's happening that those kinds of sentiments take a long time to fade away uh, you know they don't just suddenly disappear because an election result went wrong i just want to jump in uh and add to what ed said uh i totally agree and also what doesn't give me hope for the republican party kind of coming to its census and adapting to a new reality is look at how they dealt with 2012 when they thought they were going to win. They were they very much lost the presidential election. They did the now very famous autopsy that talked about outreach to Hispanics, about dealing with immigration, and also very famously did the exact opposite of every, everything in that autopsy report. And over the last two days, I've been talking to uh, establishment Republicans, for lack of a better term. And, you know, they, they're they kind of saying the same things of we need to, we need more outreach to minorities, we need to adapt conservative uh, ideas, we need to translate them better to these minority communities. But at the same time, they all acknowledge that it's not very likely to happen because they have this huge fight looming in the Republican Party after the election. As one Republican operative put it to me, uh, 2016 was supposed to be about mom and dad finally having out their differences, i.e. the Tea Party wing, again, for lack of a better term, of the Republican Party and the establishment wing, who have been duking it out in Congress and across the nation for the last uh, eight years. And instead, as this uh, GOP operative said, instead the crazy uncle shows up, hijacks Thanksgiving dinner, and, you know, by the end of the night, he'll be gone. There'll be food everywhere, shattered China everywhere, or Gina, as Alec Baldwin says. But mom and dad still haven't had the fight in front of the kids, and they still haven't figured out their differences and whether or not they're going to get a divorce or, you know, or couples therapy. And so 
how how much outreach to minorities can you really do when your party is still at war with itself because Donald Trump on one hand exacerbated those divisions but also kicked that can down the road because they're still trying to figure out what to do with this running reality show as opposed to figuring out where the party is supposed to head in the future. Well, Rosa, you know, it seems to me that, I mean, that's an interesting metaphor and so forth. But <laughs> I, I, I uh, David, think I've actually what, been tracking the metaphors. And so far, we have Lansing Boyles, Circling Wagons, Thanksgiving Dinner with Crazy Uncle, Kicking Cans, and Reality Shows. Yeah. Well, and that's a sign that we're looking I think Reality Show at. is a metaphor, though. I think that's <laughs> I a real descriptor. <laughs> Well, I th- you know, I think that's a sign that we're looking for a way to sort of ca- define this as something bigger than it is. But it, but but just getting to the metaphor, I think anybody who thinks that, we, that you know, the crazy uncle is going to leave and that this is going to go back to mom and dad working it out and then we'll, you know, the Republican Party will be able to figure out its course going forward isn't really paying attention. This is profoundly ugly and it actually affects real human beings. I was just in the Southwest. I was talking to a bunch of young people who are primarily Latino in origin. They view Donald Trump and the Republican Party as the party of racism. They view Donald Trump and the Republican Party as the party of trying to break up their families, deport their mothers. They see this as an existential threat. It's not a crazy uncle. It's not an exercise in reality television. And across the country... All, you are seeing other groups affected this way. You know, I encourage anybody in our audience to try this. Write a tweet uh, or post something on, on Facebook that accuses Donald Trump of being an anti-Semite. And within moments, the, these, you know, sort of dark forces out there will manifest themselves and attack the person in the most brutal possible way. And this leaves scars. And I'm just wondering, Rosa, to you, you know, I mean, do you think this is just a sort of some passing thing? No, I, I think can... the the metaphor of the crazy uncle is is misleading in the sense that that mom and dad have always had plenty of crazy uncle in them to start with. You know, Trump has has come to symbolize a lot of stuff, and Trump's own willingness to be overt about what Republican Party leaders have always been non-overt about has obviously. Uh, empowered people to come out into the open in a new kind of way. But this has always been there. You know, this has absolutely always been there. And the difference the difference today is, I think, two things. You know, one, I think, is that the mainstream American culture is is more attuned to calling it out, to calling out misogyny, to calling out racism, uh, whether it's in its more subtle manifestations or its more overt manifestations. You know, so, so one thing, we're we're more attuned to calling it out. And two, it is it's just it's more overt. Um, but it's always been there. I mean, the 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 Republican Party, you know, the the phrase, uh, you know, dog whistles to to its sort of uh, white and very racist core. You know, that's that's been the case for for many many decades. Um, so you know, nothing new. And I, you know, I I can't help but adding something that I think is is important to talk about, even though it's it's one of those things that be, every time anybody says it, people immediately kind of go, oh, well, yeah, duh, of course, and they move on to something else. But it's it's probably worth spending more time on. And that is that in addition to the distortions of democracy that result from deliberate gerrymandering of electoral districts to dilute the voting power of minority communities, uh, our constitution itself is 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 structured in a way that that 
for the foreseeable future will dilute the voting power of exactly those minority groups, even when they become nationally speaking majority groups. I mean, to mention just the most obvious piece of this, uh, the the Senate, the, the two votes, two senators per state, regardless of the state's population, the more sparsely populated, more rural states also tend to be states that have smaller minority populations. Uh, and yet they have outsized votes um, in the Senate. They have outside ability to block judicial nominees. They have about outside ability to, to control American foreign policy. You know, so, so this country is not a democracy in, in any meaningful sense. It never has been, and it is certainly not now. And we need to be talking about that. We, 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 have, this sort of, we have such a powerful myth about America as the world's leading democracy, blah, 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 that when any, anybody mentions something like that, everybody acts as though that's this just sort of tedious little detail that we don't need to spend any time talking about. But it's it's actually it's unconscionable. It'd be unconscionable today if if we saw some other fledgling democracy or newly independent country try to create a voting system that gave such disproportionate power to to a particular ethnic group in that manner in, in a way that would sort of lock it in semi permanently as the ruling as the ruling elite. We would be shocked and we would denounce it. But that's the system that we have today. A very interesting and salient point. We've got about 15 minutes, and so I want to break this into two chunks here, although there's clearly lots that we can talk about. But picking up on the constitutional point, one of the things that has been troubling to me, because I've never seen this before in a U.S. election, is the the fact that Trump, for the past couple of weeks, has essentially been running on the notion that this election is rigged. Uh, and has been fanning the flames of unrest among his supporters, saying, challenge it, there'll be violence in the streets, there'll be people with pitchforks and torches, this is, you know, that the, the, the elites Probably are trying AR-15s. to force... Forget yeah, pitchforks. Well, po- yeah. well, possibly. But, you know, there's a term for what Trump is doing, and it's called sedition. And it's actually against the law. It's against the law for somebody to go out and incite an uprising against the authority of the state, um, and particularly to do so in a way that could be so damaging to the United States. And, you know, you could get 20 years in a federal prison for sedition. And and this is the textbook definition of it. Uh, and yet we sort of accept it, just like we accept a lot of the other clownish behavior from from Trump. Although the day after this election... Uh, to the extent to which there's violence or unrest or people are contesting its outcome, uh, the the consequences might be significantly greater. Ed, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think I, I share your um, foreboding about what, what might be the situation on November the 9th. You know, I do think that when we go through Republicans, not just in the swing states, and ask, well, do you still support Trump? Um, and you've got five different answers. You know, some don't. Um, some just refuse to answer. They like Mitch McConnell. They just keep their counsel. You know, others um, unendorse, then reendorse, and then others stick to their guns and support Trump. I think for those who are wavering, which is the vast majority, just hoping you know it will go away, maintaining an ostrich-like position, they're a bit short-sighted because on November the ninth, they're all going to be asked, "Do you believe this election was rigged?" At which point, they cannot say. Uh, Yes, 